Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Journalism. I'm David Schwartz from the University of Iowa School of Journalism and Mass Communication. In this episode, we hear from Matthew Cecil, author of Hoover's FBI and the Fourth Estate, The Campaign to Control the Press and the Bureau's Image. For Cecil, this book was a labor of love that dates back well before he entered the academy. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So before we get too far into the book, tell us a little bit about your background, both as a scholar and a researcher. Sure. Well, my background uh, goes back to my professional work as a journalist and a public relations practitioner. So I've actually worked in the areas that I study, which I think is a a big advantage for me. Uh, I got my PhD at the University of Iowa in 2000. I served on faculties at Purdue, uh, the University of Oklahoma, South Dakota State, and now Wichita State University. I'm director of the Elliott School of Communication here. And I'm really interested in all media history, but particularly the 20th century, and even more specifically in public relations history, which I think is an area that hasn't been covered nearly as much as it should be, considering how important public relations is to shaping media messages. Uh, And it it only gets more and more important. So tracing sort of the roots of where that uh, uh, came from is really, really important, I think, and, and has been my most important research interests for many years. And for again, for the benefit of our listeners, the book is Hoover's FBI and the Fourth Estate. What is the background of this book? Where did this book come from? Well, it goes way back. Uh, I've been interested in the FBI since I was really a teenager. I'm 49 now, uh, so three decades, really. Uh, when I was a teenager, I worked in a restaurant in Brookings, South Dakota, uh, where I was a dishwasher, and I used to run these tubs of dishes upstairs you know, schlepping dishes upstairs, washing them and running them back down. And it was, you know, one of those jobs where your mind is completely shut off. And eventually I sort of noticed that there were some news clippings in the hallway that I passed through over and over again. And those news clippings were from a bank robbery that occurred in that same building. It was an old bank that had been converted into a restaurant. And the robbery was in 1938 uh, when Ben and Stella Mae Dixon robbed uh, that Northwestern Security National Bank. So I was, you know, it sort of captured my imagination, which I think is really at the heart of what historians do. I mean, we're, we want to understand the past, and, and one of the things we wish we could do is sort of travel back and see what actually happened. So I was always fascinated with this idea of these bank robbers, you know. I'd stand in the front of the restaurant and sort of picture the idea that they were in there with their guns holding people up, or I'd look across the street at the, the bar across the street and think about, you know, them waiting there before they sort of pushed their way into the bank and robbed that bank. And so that captured my imagination, got me interested in history. And later, uh, as a college student, one of my professors, Jerry Sweeney at South Dakota State University, said, well, why don't you get the FBI file from that? I had never even considered that. So I made a FOIA request. And then months later, after I'd forgotten entirely about it, 5,000 pages arrived on this bank robbery. And Ben and Stella Mae Dixon became a great interest of, of mine for many years. And uh, like I did my master's degree, I did a thesis on Ben and Stella and sort of at that point, you know, sort of started thinking of them, you know, not just as a really interesting story, which they are, 
but also as, you know, sort of props in some sort of public relations campaign that the FBI was doing. And uh, later in, in my dissertation, I, I looked at the same topic in more depth. And ever since, I've been uh, publishing and presenting papers on various aspects of these because I've collected about 400,000 pages of FBI documents using the Freedom of Information Act over the years. So it's an interest that goes way, way back and is sort of developed from just, you know, a fascination with one incident in history into uh, a sort of research agenda that looks at how the FBI used public relations to establish its legitimacy. There is a lot of academic work and and especially even more so mainstream work on Hoover. Who is... Who is the J. Edgar Hoover that you present in this book? And what did you learn about him through your research that you had not known before? That's a good question. It's, it's really interesting. When you read this many FBI documents, you get a real feel for sort of the workflow and, and the personalities of people involved. Because I'm not, you know, you're not looking at just documents with you know, typewritten memos and things. There are handwritten notes. There are you know, routing slips, uh, you, you really get a feel for the way things were working inside of an organization when you read that many pages of documentation. And of course, the FBI was really good at documenting things. So, you know, you get a feel for Hoover uh, over time. He was, uh, the, the workflow, the typical workflow in the FBI was, you know, information sort of bubbled up to the top in the form of these memoranda. And then he would read them and perhaps make a notation on them. He, you know, he didn't write long narratives. He would write usually pithy little comments on these uh, pages. And what the sense you get is someone who, of course, you know, bureaucratically was, I suppose you could say he was a genius as far as creating a bureaucracy that, that functioned in, in the way that he wanted. They were great at collecting and organizing information, which, after all, is a big part of what law enforcement does. Uh, he had, you know, he deserves credit uh, in, in that he was a very early person to sort of understand the importance of fingerprint science at a time when that was not uh, a common, a commonly used law enforcement technique in the U S it was uh, established in Europe and moved over later. Uh, so he deserves some credit for professionalizing the FBI and all of that. But the person that you really get to know as you study J Edgar Hoover is uh, a, a truly uh, one of the most narrow human beings I think I've ever encountered someone whose view of uh, what it meant to be an FBI agent or what it meant to be an American even was incredibly narrow. And based on his, his own perspective, he, he took that FBI and because he was essentially the, the sun king of the FBI, he could, he could pick and choose the people he wanted to keep. Uh, and the people that he kept were people who had that same exact worldview as him or the people who were smart enough or ambitious enough to adopt that worldview and become that same sort of narrow person. Hoover's uh, was not a great analytical mind. Uh, this is a guy for whom simple black and white differences were the ones that he could understand. Uh, for example, he never understood uh, the left uh, of American politics. He saw it as a as a monolithic group with the, you know all of them basically communists. He didn't understand that that the left was not even a coherent group in America uh, at all during the period of time that, that he was concerned about them. And the other kind of interesting thing to me is, is you know, besides that sort of xenophobic, simplistic worldview, uh, this is a guy who never traveled uh, very widely 
uh, grew up and, and lived in his his mother's home until the day she died. Uh, besides that, you see someone who's really very um, who makes a lot of snap judgments, uh, and you see this in these these little. He called them blue gems because he was allegedly the only person the FBI allowed to write with a blue pen. Uh, you see those those his sort of snap judgments. Often he would, you know, for example, with the press, uh, if there was a story that upset him, he would you know immediately dash off a, a note saying, "Put these people on the do not contact list." In other words, you know, blacklist them so they're not allowed to have FBI information anymore. And what you see from his his uh, lieutenants beneath him in the uh, bureaucracy is them trying to sort of, you know, uh, while following the letter of the law, for example, Lewis Nichols, who's in charge of crime records, when Hoover would say, put somebody on the do not contact list, oftentimes a few weeks later, Nichols would slip them back uh, into, you know, the the normal PR circles and say, uh, and maybe let Hoover know and maybe not. Uh, So there's a lot of people sort of behind the scenes trying to make up for his really poor judgment when it came to a lot of these things uh, and certainly to protect him from or to protect the FBI from uh, his, his dumb ideas uh, when they came down. So you've got a person who's, you know, honestly uh, a brilliant bureaucrat. uh, But other than that, really in my mind, not a real smart person, uh, not a analytical person, certainly not a thoughtful person, somebody who's, who's prone to snap judgments and uh, somebody whose worldview really just doesn't accept much other than uh, a very sort of late uh, 19th century view of what it meant to be an American. So Hoover's a, you know, people focus on things like his uh, sexuality and there's a a book, Doug Charles uh, is writing a book about uh, Hoover and and, uh, gay rights in America, which will be fascinating, I think. But people focus on that stuff, but I'm really interested in what kind of a a leader he was in his organization. And, and frankly, the picture that I get from reading all those documents is that uh, this is not a person you would ever want to emulate uh, in leadership style. And this is really, really not a person you would want to wield the kind of power that he had. So you brought up the, the do not contact list and I'm going to jump out of order a little bit. Uh, Explain, what this idea of, of the custodial detention index was. This is the custodial detention, uh, excuse me, the custodial detention index, uh, the CDI, was Hoover's list of people to round up in case of any sort of national emergency. And when I say round up, I mean literally round up. There would be no due process, no habeas corpus. These people would just be picked up and imprisoned because he saw them as a danger to America. And here's Here's the problem. Well, there are a million problems with that, of course. First of all, that it's illegal. But the problem is that the nature of the information the FBI used uh, to create this list was uh, rumor, innuendo. Uh, it basically, anytime anybody said somebody was a communist or had been involved in some sort of activity that would suggest that they were in, in what the FBI term, terminology was a, quote, near communist, uh, they would get added to that list. And there were many journalists on it. And this idea uh, that, you know, without due process and based on oftentimes, you know, just ridiculous, easily uh, proven false allegations that they would be added to this list. I mean, it's just it's unbelievable. And in fact, uh, the attorney general at one point 
told Hoover uh, to knock it off, uh, to stop compiling the list. So Hoover just changed the name to Security Index and continued to do exactly the same thing. And this idea of the CDI, by the way, goes all the way back to the beginning of Hoover's tenure at the Justice Department during uh, the Palmer raids uh, of 1919 uh, and 1920, where uh, you know thousands and thousands of American alleged anarchists were rounded up, uh, typically without any evidence, oftentimes without uh, even any uh, arrest warrant, uh, and were imprisoned overnight uh, by Hoover, who was in charge of that, of the uh, General Intelligence Division of the Justice Department at the time, uh, he started keeping that list before he was director of the FBI. And then when he was director of the FBI, he continued adding to that list. I've seen a few estimates that suggest there were as many as, as 20 or 30,000 people on the custodial detention list. I mean, it would be, uh, you can probably just imagine, it would be anyone on the left who has any sort of opinion leading influence or, or who is involved in certain kinds of work excuse me, organizations would be added to this list. So it's just, it's an astonishing overreach by the nation's top law enforcement uh, police official uh, that was actually something that even the attorney general uh, in the 1930s decided was illegal, but Hoover just continued it. Uh, And, you know, in in the book, you can see uh, people like George Seldes, who's a great lefty journalist. And, and of course, I.F. Stone, those, those kind of people, uh, James Wexler, uh, they were all added to that custodial detention index. So the subtitle of the book is The Campaign to Control the Press and the Bureau's Image, and the idea of control the press. Uh, the press is a is a large and proud, not but not infallible institution. What are some ways that Hoover was successfully able to go about uh, doing this to in, in controlling the press? Well, really, in part, it, he was... Uh, the beneficiary of some things that were out of his own control. Uh, certainly his ability to control the press was based, I think, in large part on the sort of iconic status that he and his organization gained during the 1930s. And really even before Hoover uh, became a, a adherent to the ideas of the notions of public relations that became central to everything that he did later, uh, the FBI became prominent uh, because of its role in the war on crime. It was actually declared by the attorney general in the early 1930s. So Hoover sort of benefited from that. And, and as soon as the FBI and its stories became interesting, and I think you have to talk a little bit about, you know, the context of the great depression when nothing seems to work in America. Uh, here you've got a law enforcement agency that goes out and gets Dillinger ultimately. So people are seeing something working. I think it was a really compelling sort of exciting uh, kind of an agency uh, that people really got interested in. So Hoover, you know, he's he's benefiting from the idea that these stories uh, of the FBI's exploits had become extremely popular even before he started to sort of leverage them uh, as a public relations prop. So he's he's sitting there on top of this this empire of stories that people want to hear. Uh, and meanwhile, of course, there are people in the press who would really love to tell those stories. So you've got the combination of, of something that's very exciting uh, to the public. You've got the press who would really, really like to uh, report those stories. And then you've got a secretive law enforcement agency that's entirely in control of all of the information uh, that it puts out, you know, in, in a way that, that you know, uh, let's say the, the Department of State 
you know, isn't in the same kind of control as the FBI is because the FBI is a law enforcement agency uh, that works in, in secret in many of the things that they do. So he's got control of information. People want that information. People in the press want that information. Uh, and he's able to sort of meter it out to those people who are willing uh, to follow what essentially is a, a template for the stories that they tell, a template that uh, really is a, a response to a concern that Hoover has, and that's that people might see the FBI as a danger to society because, after all, early in its uh, existence, it was a corrupt disaster of an agency uh, that you know brought us things like the Palmer Raids and Teapot Dome and other wonderful moments in American history. Uh, and you know, his job was to sort of overcome that ongoing crisis of legitimacy where Americans tend not to be too excited about too much centralized power. So he's got to deal with that. And he realizes that, that by creating a, a, essentially a template for FBI stories, and uh, a historian, uh, Richard Gibb Powers, has written wonderful stuff about the FBI myth and the FBI sort of PR template. Uh, this template includes things like uh, trying to demonstrate that the FBI is not subject to human foibles or to someone's uh, uh, megalomania by suggesting that, hey, they, we use science to solve crimes. You know, science is clinical. Science tells you someone's guilty or they're innocent. It's not about trying to persecute anybody. So science appears in all of these stories. Uh, they talk about being you know, responsible and reluctant law enforcement agencies. Uh, which is a, a you know exactly what they were not, but they talk about that in those stories. And then, of course, there's this effort to sort of portray J. Edgar Hoover as this uh, sort of ultra-perfect, solid American who you can trust to sort of wield these you know levers of power as a law enforcement official. Uh, you put those things together, you've got a, a, a story template, you've got total control over information, You've got a public that's clamoring for these stories, and you've got journalists who are frankly ambitious and want to be the ones to tell those stories. And you've got a situation that's just perfectly set up for Hoover to, to, to control the press, to control his public image by, uh, you know, putting people on do not contact lists uh, or uh, if, they, if they write critical stories or asking his friends in the press to uh, write things that undermine other reporters. Uh, when they get out of line, uh, he's in total control of his public image in a way uh, that we're seeing again, I think now, I think there's some certain relationship to, to some government agencies we see now. Um, and and he, he's able uh, through those, uh, those series of circumstances to basically tell the story that he wants told about the FBI and, and essentially use the press to help hide the real story of what he was up to. Did he did he want to be the the sort of the strong noble public face of the FBI? Or was that merely a byproduct of what happens when dealing with journalists who like to put a face on things? I think it's clear that he wanted that. I think it, it fed his ego. Uh, he was, uh, I think, a, a person who liked to be seen as being in control. You can certainly see it in his dealings with everyone inside the FBI, and I think he reveled in that attention that he got. Um, it. it you know, you can dig into a lot of psychoanalysis here and, and try to figure out why that might have been. Uh, but I think it's pretty clear from the evidence that that was the case. After all, uh, you know, he purged people from the FBI, like Melvin Purvis, the guy who 
Gott Dillinger was essentially purged from the FBI because Hoover didn't want to compete, didn't want anybody competing with his dominance of the organization and, and of the public image of the organization. So it's pretty clear to me that that whether he was just taking advantage of, of the way people uh, wanted to report about the FBI or not, he loved being at the center of those stories and at the center really of everything involving the FBI. What the, uh, you said there's some maybe some parallels now with, with some government agencies that you see, maybe just anecdotally, but what are some examples, some current examples of what you see happening now with certain agencies that um, maybe have their its ancestry in what Hoover tried to do years ago? Well, sure. I think you can just look at, at the whole national security state that we live in now as a, sort of a, a outgrowth of what Hoover was doing for, for decades uh, we have you know, a giant organization, the NSA, who I'm sure they're listening in now. Hello, NSA people. Hello. Nice, nice to have you stop by. Uh, you've got the NSA who's got total control over the information or tries to have total control over the information that comes out about it, uh, is doing some pretty unbelievable uh, and intrusive domestic intelligence, much like Hoover was, uh, who, as we have seen, is not above... Uh, misleading the public about what they're doing, just as Hoover was. Uh, the only difference today is is that really uh, the the public perception of the NSA isn't as a wonderful, benevolent uh, uh, caretaker as Hoover's public uh, image was. Uh, it's you know the kind people know what's going on with the NSA, and and whether they're alarmed about it or not, they don't have any uh, any sort of uh, idea that the NSA is, is looking out only for the best of us and, and, and in the way that Hoover was, you know, our protector and the protector of civil liberties and all of that. So I think the, the, the national security state that's grown up around uh, through the Cold War and, and up until today, uh, after 9-11, certainly sees uh, its roots in what the FBI was doing. You know, Hoover took some very narrow presidential directives and expanded them into a massive domestic intelligence gathering operation. Uh, and I think, I think history uh, 20 or 30 years from now will show that something similar has been going on with uh, the national security apparatus today. What was in it for the press? And, and, and obviously not, I mean, everybody was in, in bed with Hoover, but for those who um, adhered to what he was trying to do, what was, what was in it for them? That's a really good question. What I think was in it for them was um, they got to be, they got to feel like they were part of essentially friends of the Bureau, part of this iconic success story in America. That's so in, in a way it, it, it fed for people who are ideologically, you know, inclined uh, to support Hoover anyway, it sort of provided them with, you know, some kind of special status that they were able to be quote unquote friends of the Bureau. And what's of course hilarious about that is that frequently they, you know, Hoover didn't know who they were. It was just his correspondence team was really great at creating these false fake uh, friendships between Hoover and, and people in the press. You know, his correspondence team would write a letter to a reporter and ask him how their wife was. Uh, who had been sick, but of course Hoover had no idea that any of that was going on. So these people are hanging up, you know, pictures of Hoover and and filing his letters for their grandchildren to see, thinking that they're friends of the bureau, 
and friends of the FBI director, one of the most powerful people in the country. So I think it fed that need for some people. Of course, you know, the popularity of the stories, you know, if you're a reporter, uh, and I was a reporter, what my editors wanted for me was uh, they wanted good stories that people wanted to read. Uh, and the FBI certainly supplied those uh, in great numbers uh, throughout its history. Oftentimes, you know, with stories like my bank robbers from uh, the 1930s, Ben and Stella Dixon, you know, they sort of were created uh, or embellished into, the, you know, the Bonnie and Clyde of their day, even though they were just kind of two dumb kids who made a lot of you know, really stupid choices and didn't really hurt anybody. Uh, they, they just made some really dumb moves. So the FBI would, you know, create Bonnie and Clyde out of these kinds of people. So they were really good at picking and choosing the stories they wanted to tell. And reporters uh, ate that stuff up. The, the people who were inclined to be uh, part of this FBI image-making machine uh, did a lot of things that you would say journalists really shouldn't do. They allowed the FBI to edit their stories. They, they only accepted information from Hoover and the FBI. They wouldn't go out and try to find any independent confirmation or, or speak to critics of any kind. So they really kind of, you know, I was, I was talking to someone today uh, about Don Whitehead, who's a great you know, part of the story. He's a two-time Pulitzer Prize winner. He wrote the FBI's authorized uh, history, the FBI story in 1956. And here's a guy who's a, you know, Pulitzer Prize winner. He's, he's got this, you know, incredible journalistic credibility. Uh, that he just sort of pitches out the window because he goes and sits in an office at the FBI and writes the FBI story only with information the FBI gave him, the stuff that they wanted him to see. Uh, and then the book is marketed as this, uh, you know, independent insider view of the FBI. So uh, that obviously fed uh, his interest in writing a bestseller. Uh, so there are all these people who sort of, you know, were willing uh, to be part of that FBI team uh, for whatever reason, ambition or ideology. Uh, so they got a lot out of it. And, and the publications that publish these stories, obviously, you know, if people are clamoring to hear about these things, uh, they're going to be picking up the paper and reading it or, uh, you know, listening to the radio or whatever they're doing. So there's a lot in it for people. When you have something, an iconic agency like that, uh, there's an awful lot there uh, that the press wants. And Hoover was able to see controlled everything he was able to really uh, sort of play off of that you know, need for information that the press has. What is this concept of adjunct FBI agents that you write about? That's, uh, this is, uh, it's, it's an interesting concept. It's, it's essentially, uh, it's journalists who didn't just write what the FBI wanted, but actually became information gatherers for the FBI. Uh, people, uh, like uh, uh, Jack Carley from the Memphis uh, paper. Jack Carley became essentially uh, an adjunct FBI agent because he was what they called a special service contact. And special service contacts were people that the FBI could call upon to gather information that perhaps would be sensitive for them to gather themselves. For you know, A good example would be information on other members of the press. If the FBI wants to know what some... A reporter in Tennessee is up to. Uh, they can't go asking questions because, of course, that's going to end up in the paper, but they can call up Jack Carley, the associate editor of the Memphis Commercial Appeal, and Jack will make those inquiries for them and then report back to them what he finds. 
Uh, so you've got people like him, and there are several others in the book. Uh, Whitehead was another one. You've got people like him who are willing to be essentially information gatherers or, or you know, adjunct FBI agents, uh, discreetly gathering information where the FBI can't. Uh, and you know, to me, that's um, that's sort of the height of of unethical behavior for for a news reporter to essentially become part of the story, uh, become part of the organization that they're supposed to be covering. You know, no one expects a journalist to be perfect, and anybody who's thought about it understands that uh, when you're asked to cover an organization, uh, that there are some compromises that are made in order to access information. But uh, typically, we don't think of, uh, you know, good journalism as being someone who becomes uh, essentially, you know, a, a a mouthpiece for an agency, or in this case, uh, becomes an FBI agent to gather information for the FBI. With the with these sort of so-called adjunct FBI FBI agents or the special service eh, special service contacts, as you call them, were they paid, or were they paid through appreciation in some other way? Well, uh, yeah, they were paid through appreciation. For example, Carly uh, Jack Carly was frequently invited to come and speak to the FBI Law Enforcement Academy on subjects of, of police and public relations. So they become, uh, you know, it's, it's a big deal. You get, you get brought to, to Virginia. Uh, Hoover comes to the ceremony. You speak. He tells you how awesome you are. You get your picture taken with him. You take that home. You put it on the wall. And now uh, everybody knows that you are J. Edgar Hoover's pal. Uh, and, you know, that's a, a big deal with your buddies down at the country club or whatever. So that's the kind of stuff that they got. Fulton Hoursler, who was uh, an editor at Reader's Digest and Liberty Magazine, got the same kind of treatment. Uh, you know, he, he was brought to speak at the FBI. They, they got special access to information. They get uh, stories that others don't get. They get them sooner. I mean, there are a lot of ways the FBI sort of paid them back for this stuff. Uh, but I think, you know, the, the real true believers, like you know, certainly Car- Carly and Hoursler, uh, they were just excited to be part of the FBI. I think they sort of were frustrated G-men themselves, and they got some sort of uh, kick out of being a part of this kind of thing. We are continuing with Matt Cecil, author of Hoover's FBI and the Fourth Estate. And some of what you talked about, how the the the, uh, the FBI and Hoover's Hoover's men, Hoover's deputies, made the press just, for lack of better words, just feel good. It felt good for them to be involved with something larger than themselves, larger than themselves. And it's, it makes me think now of, of Hollywood press agents or when um, you know, athletes will bring certain reporters into their inner circle and the reporter will then you know, ignore certain stories and write about certain other things. And it's very much uh, public relations tactics in a way. Um, is that what you covered as well, that what, what the FBI was doing under Hoover's watch was very much a precursor to what became PR 101? Absolutely. Uh, one of the, the things that I want to make clear from this book is that anyone who's interested in public relations history really needs to place the FBI in that timeline because here we've got Hoover basically starting in the mid-1930s, picking up many of the ideas that Edward Bernays had, had started using, uh, many of the, the PR tactics or PR strategies that Bernays had started in the you know 1920s, this idea of uh, PR being a, a process of information gathering. In other words, you're making 
uh, you're communicating strategically. You're not just sending messages out into the air. You're checking feedback and finding out what's going on and trying to send more persuasive messages. Well, Hoover had a nationwide uh, sort of uh, PR information gathering group. They were the 52 local special agents in charge in all of the offices around the country whose job it was uh, to A, spread PR messages for the FBI with local opinion leaders, mayors, sheriffs, uh, legislators, members of Congress, other community leaders. And they were also there to sort of do the, the information gathering. They were listening to what was going on in their local uh, community, uh, listening to what people thought of the FBI. Uh, they were sending that information. They, one of the first things they did every morning is they sat down. These people, by the way, special agents in charge, are supposed to be you know, in charge of a, uh, a law enforcement agency uh, where they're out you know, solving crimes. Well, the first thing they did every morning was sit down with the paper and clip out any articles uh, that might relate to the FBI or, or might relate to something the FBI would want to know and put those in a packet and send them back to Washington where they were centrally analyzed and the FBI would create its public relations messages based on, on in part, on that information. So he's able to practice this sort of centralized uh, decision-making, uh, which you now, you know, people now know is, is a key to public relations. You need to have the PR people at the, you know, at the management table uh, understanding what's going on, uh, and they can't just be a you know, secondary concern. Uh, Hoover was practicing this, practicing this from the very beginning, gathering all of this information, digesting it at, in Washington in what he called the seat of government of the FBI, uh, the main office in Washington, and, and then crafting messages based on that. Uh, he, he also had uh, probably the most important, the second most important figure in, in the history of the FBI, Louis B. Nichols, who was his his public relations guy, uh, had worked in public relations. So he has a lot of expertise there in the office. And what you see is, is over time, uh, public relations concerns become central to everything the FBI does. There's this mantra that supposedly every agent knew, which was don't embarrass the Bureau, no matter what you do. And they try to find ways to, to shape messages so that they wouldn't ever embarrass the Bureau. Um, but yeah, public relations is, is really at the core of what we're talking about here. Uh, and Hoover was an early and comprehensive practitioner of that sort of insight-based, information-based messaging that, that public relations has become over the course of the last century or so. And I want to stay on this idea of the FBI and PR. And, and Hoover was about 20 when Woodrow Wilson uh, you know, made, made the pitch for America to get into World War I, which is, you know, Chomsky identified as, you know, the U.S.'s first, one of the first real big PR pitches. Was he uh, just some really aware of the ability of government agencies to shape public opinion? Or did he think, or did he see this as something that um, the FBI had to sort of build from the ground up? I, I'm not sure if I'm asking the question in the way that I want to, but maybe you can sort of flush that out. Yeah, I, I, I think that Hoover became aware of the power of public relations and was able to then uh, build his bureau or rebuild his bureau uh, to be a public relations organization. And what I mean by that is, you know, in those early 1930s, really late 1920s, the FBI saw uh, the power of PR when, you know, something big, let's say the Dillinger uh, case, the Dillinger shooting happened. The FBI saw instantly and you'd have to be 
blind not to notice that uh, immediately the FBI became big news and that the FBI was the source of the information for most of those stories about the Dillinger shooting, uh, which, you know, of course made Hoover famous and made Melvin Purvis famous. Uh, and it was shortly thereafter that the crime records division, the crime records section, it was, you know, went back and forth in name over the year, uh, was formed in the FBI with Lewis Nichols at the head. The crime records division was really their public relations division. Uh, Nichols was responsible for crafting those messages, for collaborating with people uh, and and sending them. So I think Hoover became aware. I don't think he was uh, uh, as insightful insightful enough to really you know see what uh, Woodrow Wilson did and see what uh, Bernays was talking about in the early 1920s and adopt that. I think he saw from experience that controlling that message is key. And then I think people like Lewis Nichols uh, sort of translated that into a public relations uh, apparatus within the FBI that was extremely effective in controlling that message. As Hoover was building these relationships with the press and, and, and members, select members of the press were getting some benefits out of it, what kind of resistance or, or just notice was there on the left side of the press? Were they aware of what was going on? Could, could they see what Hoover was trying to do with the press? I think so, absolutely. I think if you look at uh, uh, The Nation, The New Republic, if you look at uh, George Seldes's In Fact magazine, if you look at I Have Stone later on, I think they all knew very well uh, exactly what Hoover was trying to do. There was a, a reporter named Fred J. Cook who was just a rewrite man at uh, a New York newspaper who uh, wrote an article in 1958 in The Nation that really, if you look at it now, you, you just have to ask yourself how he figured all that stuff out because he, he pinned Hoover. Uh, he, he pegged him, I'm sorry, as a public relations practitioner in 1958. And there were others even before that, a guy named Max Lowenthal, who was a, a lawyer who worked with Truman also wrote a book where he sort of pointed out that Hoover was a lot of flash and, and, and not a lot of substance uh, way back in 1940. So yeah, this was, there were people on the left who were, of course, raising the alarm about what Hoover was up to and pointing out that, that really this was a lot of a lot of message and not a lot of substance. And in fact, that it was uh, in part to cover up what was actually happening uh, way back, uh, back to 1940. And then really in the 1950s, you see a lot of critics appear. And it, 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 later on, of course, uh, there's a great book by Betty Metzger that's out right now. Of the burglary. It's about uh, when some files were stolen from an FBI office in 1971 by some anti-war protesters uh, who were the, you know, the first to really provide us with evidence of what Hoover was up to. Um, people were speculating about what they discovered as a result of that burglary uh, that Metzger wrote about. People, there were people on the left who knew all of that was happening. It, it took until 1971, though, before anybody was really able to prove it by showing documents that prove the FBI was doing what it was doing. There was a, I'm going to, we're coming toward the end here, but I, I want to touch on Hoover's presence in Hollywood and on, on, on television. And, and there was a show that ran from around 65 to 74 called the FBI. What was the Bureau's involvement with that show? And, and how did Hoover watch that and perceive it and constantly try to, if he did, if in any ways, try to shape it? Yeah, that's, uh, that's the final chapter of the book where I really sort of look at this uh, television show, the FBI, as the ultimate expression of FBI public relations during the Hoover era, where they took 
everything that they'd done and produced it in a format uh, that it was seen by millions of Americans every week. Uh, that program was really the FBI's idea. Uh, the FBI was involved in the very conception of the program. They were involved in every aspect of the production, everything from uh, vetting the actors to uh, not just the actors, but vetting the actors, every crew member. You know, the key grip was somebody who's who had been investigated by the FBI. And of course, then even controlling down to the point of controlling the scripts uh, word by word, editing them. There's a guy named Milton Jones uh, in the FBI's main office that edited every script, you know, word for word and would, you know, write dialogue and, and uh, change names and change, you name it. I mean, they, they controlled that program from start to finish. And it was this sort of fascinating give and take with these television producers from Hollywood, who of course are people who know how to create entertaining programming. Uh, meanwhile, the FBI is essentially trying to stop them from doing anything entertaining at all on the program because they see that as, as uh, sort of putting fear in people's minds about the FBI's power. No, the uh, Hoover was crazy about, I mean, he just went nuts about violence in this program. It's a law enforcement show, right? There's going to be somebody shooting a gun at some point in an American, uh, you know, 1960s law enforcement program. But Hoover, you know, he, he just flipped out whenever that happened. He, he did not want violence in this television show, which, if, you know, it's, if you think about it, that would, it, it, and if you've seen it, uh, it's not that thrilling of a television show, I can tell you that. But the FBI controlled this from start to finish. They controlled the casting. They controlled everything about it. And to me, it's just stunning that, that first of all, that, that the FBI, that the amount of, of human power that was spent to control this you know, popular television show, you know, somebody editing the scripts, there, was, there were agents on the set. Uh, the FBI was providing basically the nugget of every story. Uh, and editing it down to the, the word. Um, but secondly, of course, it was just the idea that, that Hollywood, you know, and they still do this, that Hollywood will go along with these sort of constraints. It demonstrates, once again, that even to the end, uh, those stories about the FBI were very popular and that people were willing to do whatever they had to do uh, to be the ones to produce them. Um, there was some you know, backlash against that FBI television series from the mainstream media that, that got wind of the idea that the FBI was, was closely involved. Um, you saw a little of that. But really, as far as most Americans knew, you know, the FBI was uh, you know, the agency that they saw on television. But Ephraim Zimbalist was the perfect example of an FBI agent who was out there you know, solving uh, – bombing threats and hijackings and things like that, uh, usually without firing a shot uh, in this sort of detective hero way that they wanted to show it. Um, but yeah, the, the, the control of that PR message was astonishing. And if you think about the reach and power of a message like that, it was what Hoover really needed as his sort of grasp on the bureaucracy of the FBI faded as he got older uh, towards the end of his life, he needed the public to believe in the FBI more than ever. And that television show was a great way to get those sort of bureau, uh, the bureau's preferred message and image of itself out there. So that, that TV show, uh, I, you know, it's one of the most interesting files I've ever read. 
because of the sort of granular control that the FBI exerted over that thing. And you, you mentioned his, his strange aversion to violence in the show. Is this great anecdote at the beginning of that chapter where he's reading a New York Times article and then about there being too much violence in the show. And he writes in the margins, you know, what can we do about this violence? Too much violence. Um, it just sort of shows that his, his, he really, his reach was never ending. Like he tried to control everything, including the public's perception of there being violence in the FBI. Of course there's oh, violence. Absolutely. And, and even the advertisements. He chose the sponsors for the show based on what he thought was an acceptable image for the FBI. There's one anecdote in the book that, that talks about, uh, I think there was a, a soap ad or something or a deodorant ad. And Hoover was really upset that, you know, someone was advertising you know, hygiene project products during his, his show. He thought it was beneath the FBI. There's another one where he didn't like the voice of a singer in a Ford Mustang commercial and made that known. Uh, to the the producers. So yeah, absolutely complete control over everything with that television show. So we're, we're coming toward the end here. Uh, this, this seemed like this book was a real labor of love for you. In addition to being something that you wanted to produce academically. Um, this, I mean, it goes back to you had an interest in high school and the FBI, and then you did some work with, you know, with your masters when you foyed those documents and then, you know, your dissertation was around this as well. Through all of this process, I'm guessing a lot surprised you, but if you had to take away one or two things from all your research that maybe you were not expecting to find that our listeners would really uh, find interesting, what would you know be one or two things? I think uh, one thing that, that comes to mind right away, and, and this isn't a, a thrilling one, but it's, it's just how dumb the FBI was about uh, understanding the left of American politics. Uh, you, you sort of expect Hoover to be, because of his, his political orientation and, and all of that, you, you expect him to, to distrust the left. Uh, but what you don't expect is that he and the you know, relatively smart people around him uh, totally misunderstood the left and, and saw it and had this sort of oafish, uh, dopey understanding that, that the left was some singular unit uh, you know, bent on overthrowing the nation. I think Hoover actually believed that. And, and, and from what I uh, have read through all those documents, that's one of the things that shocks me the most. And, and you just, it's just hard to imagine that someone who's uh, in power that long, who knew all the things that he knew was still so, had such a simplistic view of the left. So that's one thing that, that struck me. Uh, the other thing I think is, uh, and this won't surprise you at all, is just, the way uh, journalists behaved in this instance, you know, you want to, I'm a journalist, I believe in journalism. I think it's, you know, it's essential to democracy. Uh, and here we have just one after another uh, prominent American journalists basically selling out uh, democracy uh, for personal uh, or uh, personal gain or personal ideology. Uh, it's upsetting uh, when you see that and, and, Don Whitehead's the best example, this Pulitzer Prize winner, but there are many others in the book of people who just um, were blindly willing to accept whatever Hoover's FBI fed them. Uh, and it's not, it's kind of a, it certainly is a cautionary tale. And I think it's something that we should think about as we go through this situation today with uh, the NSA and the national security state. But 
again, just that idea that, that journalism really wasn't, uh, didn't protect us and, in fact, enabled these excesses of the FBI during that period. It's, it's a, an upsetting uh, discovery for me. So with the book done now, what is next for you? Well, I've got a few things going. I'm really interested, for one, in fleshing out the story of George Seldes, uh, one of the journalists that you see in the book from the left. He had this wonderful newsletter called In Fact from 1940 to 1947 uh, that was, it might surprise people, it was more widely circulated than things like The Nation or The New Republic at the time, uh, where he, you know, it's this this sort of interesting uh, sort of vituperative, crazy brand of, of outrage journalism uh, from the 1940s, uh, but with a real core of, of reporting in the middle of it. And things like, uh, you know, Seldes was the first to one of really one of the very first in, in American journalism to warn of the uh, dangers of cigarette smoking. And he did that by, you know, doing what journalists should do. He went and read a bunch of government reports and discovered things and reported them to the people, things that weren't being reported by the mainstream press because, of course, they were largely supported by cigarette advertising at the time. So Seldes is this fascinating character, not just for that, but because he, he spans the whole 20th century uh, from really World War I, where he got his start, even before World War I, all the way up. Uh, he died at age 104, I think, in 1996. So the guy had an incredible life. So I'm interested in, in fleshing out his story. More recently, I've been working with uh, another aspect of this FBI and media story, and that is something called the Special Intelligence Service that the FBI created during World War II, uh, which was the Western Hemisphere uh, Intelligence Gathering Organization for the, the U.S. government. And one of the things that I've discovered is that many of the cover stories that were used for agents uh, in South America, for example, uh, were media companies. Uh, media companies allowed FBI agents to masquerade as reporters uh, in South America during that period. That That's kind of interesting to me. And then the last thing that I'm, I'm sort of uh, kicking around is uh, this whole you know, rise of the national security state and the role of journalism in, in enabling or allowing that. And, and that's a story that continues to unfold. And I'd like to you know trace it back through some of those great moments, uh, the Pentagon Papers, the the media Pennsylvania burglary that Betty Metzger wrote about and, and even on back a lot further and, and look at what the media's role in, in uh, enabling this uh, the development of really a national security state was. So I've got several things I'm working on. It's really hard when you finish a book to shift gears, but I'm, I'm slowly but surely getting going again. Well, this book by Matt Cecil is Hoover's FBI and the Fourth Estate, the campaign to control the press and the Bureau's image It is so interesting. Um, Thanks for coming on with us, and good luck with the book. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to New Books in Journalism, part of the New Books Network. You can find Hoover's FBI and the Fourth Estate, written by Matthew Cecil, at Amazon and other retailers. Thanks for listening.